Uh, Richie Wexler of Vintage Annals Archive. I'm happy to announce that we are. This is a new series we started uh, called Building Momentum. M O O M E N T U M. A very unofficial How to Dance in Ohio podcast for you. For those who don't know uh, what How to Dance in Ohio is, it was a documentary made by Alexander Alexander Shiva uh, about. Um, essentially a social skills program teaching young adults how to prepare for a dance. Uh, that then got turned into a musical that was um, in Syracuse running for about a year, if I'm not mistaken, and then it came to Broadway. Um, and it, un- unfortunately it is now over, but I, I know something is something next, whatever happens next is going to be amazing. Uh, this was such a groundbreaking process in terms of Accessibility. I mean, there was an entire accessibility team that made sure everybody felt at home in terms of rehearsing uh, everything they needed to be their best. And everyone involved got that treatment. Um, you know, I'm very sad this is over, but I have to also celebrate the fact that this this changed lots of lives. It changed my life. I Before this time, I would identify as uh, neurodivergent, or on the spectrum, and I was afraid to identify as autistic because of just stigma and this and that. Um, and this really gave me the bravery to do that, of just how real people were uh, that I got involved with, that I got to talk to. We have about 13 interviews now. We're gonna hopefully uh, add some. Um, I really have to thank, before I start, Sammy Canold, uh, the director, really went out of their way to help me out with this process. Uh, I also have to really thank um, Ray Esposito, again, was a really big help in negotiating uh, this world. I had not really done uh, much press on an active musical, and I needed a lot to learn, and those two parties were very helpful. And also, Arthur Castro, my editor, uh, really stepped it up. We, you know, once we found out the show was closing, I had to kind of, I wanted to push all this out so that way people knew the story. Um, we've got about 13 interviews with cast members, access team, the director. Um, uh, we're going to be speaking soon with Dr. Amigo, a, a wonderful man uh, who started all this. Um, and also uh, Alexander Shiva, who directed the, the documentary. And hopefully I'm going to keep adding people as this thing keeps having life. So please share. Um these are longer form interviews. I didn't do a lot of extra editing. Uh, I wanted this to be very real and authentic. And there's sometimes that I'm sure I'm not making a lot of sense. Uh, generally, when you're editing and interviewing so much in such a little time, things get a little, uh, a little lost in exhaustion. Uh, but I really wanted to honor the people by not changing too much. We did do a little bit of editing, but mostly these are as is. I didn't want to fix anything. I wanted people to be who they were and not really, you know, not change that in any way. Uh, so, you know, you're getting a very real, authentic, um, we're not heavily editing, fixing everyone's like or um, because I really wanted something real. And I wanted to honor the people I talked to and I didn't want to change their words in any real way. So thank you so much. Again, this podcast um, is called Building Moment- Momentum. Um, a very unofficial How to Dance in Ohio podcast. I named it that for a few reasons. One, I wanted to kind of cater to younger, like 14, 15-year-old 
uh, folks uh, that are autistic to kind of, you know, dig into this, the interviews. Um, and I also didn't want to get sued. So I was very clear that this was not an official thing in any way. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, again, we're going to be, we were putting out a few of these at a time. Um, as of the 12th, we will have about four or five more and we'll be adding them over the week and then possibly more. Depending on what happens next with the musical, um, we will be adding some more. And all I got to say is how well I was treated by everyone involved, how, how much I admire the cast, the crew, what they've gone through, what they built. I mean, this is one of the most beautiful things. And again, as someone who's autistic myself, as someone who's a special ed teacher, as someone who's loved musical theater since I was a kid, um, this was just something I really had to, I had to really get involved with. And I, I can't, I'm, I'm so proud of uh, what I got to do here, but more that I got to know all the people I got to know. I, these conversations were some of the most memorable ones I've had. Uh, I just want to thank everybody involved. So please again, share, enjoy. Um, and again, we have 13 episodes, hopefully more, and we'll be posting as we go along. Thank you so much. And again, if you want to check out more information on, on the podcast, it's under, it's under our main vintagegenerosarchive.com and there's a page for building momentum. This episode is with Nicole D'Angelo, who is part of the access team, also the assistant music director and also the script consultant. Um, they're, they have so much knowledge about music, so much knowledge about, uh, autism and really so much knowledge about musical theater. We had a lot of fun just kind of nerding out about collectively one of our favorite musicals, uh, falsettos. In fact, they have a uh, cat named Wizard. Um, so enjoy. But I do want to start with, I could be wrong, but the civility of Albert Cashier, wasn't that with Amani? Yes. I mean, uh, am I saying that right? Imani, yeah, right? Imani. Yeah, yeah. That's Imani. um, it, we we did that together. I music directed, and they played um, they played a few roles in it. And we yes. actually we didn't realize that we were doing the same project that we were both working on Ohio until one of the other cast members pointed it out and was like, Imani was just telling me something really similar to that. And then we realized that we were both working on Ohio. <laughs> so cool, and I love that you have a prior relationship because. Um, one thing that I don't want to get, I don't want to get too much of my conversation with Imani, but they were one of the rare people that understood them that was able to understand and talk about the magic. What are your thoughts on and how intention works? Like you've got certain things you're doing in your world that are exciting, whatever. And someone else, do you believe that our brains are actually able to connect messages because of that and having that intention of of your world? I I definitely feel like. It, people people who operate on the same wavelength are likely to encounter each other and the the disability scene the, the disability theater scene in the city is so small and there are multiple people on this project with whom like I'm like I we've worked together so many times and I can't tell you which one was the first time I, Imani in particular I was so excited to work with them because I think this is actually the fourth project we've worked on together within the span of about two years all all completely through different things, all completely unplanned. We just keep encountering each other and working with each other. 
many times when I've looked for people in theater and they were looking for something and we both found each other. But I do think there's people that talk about this as being magic. There's people that talk about this as like um, somehow that our brains notice each other. Mm -hmm. It's almost like there's, you know, you talk about the, the one of my favorite songs in this musical now is uh, about signals. Um, Waves and wires. I do feel like there's a certain way that I've experienced my own autism and communication that there is a sense that communication happens in wires. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I really do. I do believe that. I know. I totally get you. And and I, I think that, that it's totally, you, you can tell when you've met somebody who's, who's got that same energy, who's resonating yeah. at the same energy level as you. And, and you just keep running into those people over and that, that is magic about this show. And, and I think just the other magic part is there's not many musicals where, somebody goes in and 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 it it holds the potential for that person to come out changed or or realizing something about themselves and for me like i got to experience that with fun home as you did with falsettos yeah you were in, you were involved with fun home right i've done i've done a few different things with fun home it's my favorite musical i mean i've got my fun home shirt on right now <laughs> the show and i didn't even really have to see it it was just from listening to the album where I was like, I, I, it started out with, I know that there's something about this musical that's interesting me and I, I can't quite put my finger on it. And then I had the realization of like, oh, I resonate so deeply with this because I'm very much like the character Allison. And I realized about myself that, oh, I, I'm I'm queer too. And, and I realized, oh, there is a place for me in musical theater as a queer, socially awkward <laughs> person. <laughs> Um, and and Fun Home was the first time I was able to see somebody like myself on a stage. And so being able to, yeah, being able to provide that for so many autistic people, because I see it at every single performance, I can point out somebody who's just seen themselves on stage for the first time. It's it's magical. It is magical. Well, and and again, like, um, I want to focus more on you, but I do want to connect a little bit because I have had a very similar experience. Um, I got to... Uh, I was in grad, you know, I was in grad school for, I, decided, I used to work more in psych. So I, I have a lot of experience with like working with special needs. I don't know. I don't even know the terms anymore, but um, you know, kids that are, that are in various, have various disabilities that I'm working with. And I've been doing that almost 18 years in psych. And then I transitioned. I actually taught at a psych hospital, but education. And now I'm at a, I'm at a special, I'm teaching special ed and I'm at an art school. So oh, like cool. all these worlds are converging in the best way. Um, and I know there's, there's a lot, I don't know, we'll talk about this in a second, but there's a lot of rent signals coming at when I'm researching this, there's a lot of rent, little, little, I always pay attention to patterns. I think again, being more aware, I've been doing this podcast for a year and a half and more, I pay attention to more I see. And I'm like, there's a pattern here. There's a rent pattern. Some of the costumes look like rent. I know that, um, Rebecca had an experience work. She won something, some Jonathan Larson award. There's, mm -hmm. uh, there's, you know, it's not direct, but it feels like there's some DNA of this musical that comes from rent. Whether it's there. Yeah. I think that's just because it's not to compare it or, or reduce like, it. Just like rent. It. We're doing so many new things that I think it's really hard to look at this musical and be like, Oh, this musical is just like this other musical. Cause it's, it's not. <laughs> no, so it's I, think, I think, I think, like like rent it's doing so many new things that that haven't been done on broadway before you were you were all were so kind compassionate smart enough to then go further and include more about them 
-hmm. And I think whatever you've done, besides besides the fact that it's amazing, I saw it on Saturday and I was, oh my God, I'm just blown away. I'm so, I, I, I when I was done that show, my legs wouldn't stop shaking for two hours. Oh. The process you created brought out the best in everybody. And I, and I want to thank you for that. And I'm also curious on your role in that. You So you were the assistant director for this, I'm, I'm right? Am I wrong? Assistant music director. Assistant director. Um, and script consultant, right? Yes. Yeah. So does that mean you got you worked more with Ava around that around making sure the language was fitting? Uh, I worked directly with Rebecca on that. So so Rebecca and I um, worked directly. Ava was instrumental in the development process. Ava as, as being somebody who wasn't in the room all the time because she lives in in Rhode Island. Um, she was able to give her input from afar. So they would send her the draft of the script. She could give her feedback. Um, and then what I was able to do because I had the privilege of, of being in the room was I was there the whole time with Rebecca. And if something came up in the space, I could be there. And, and it happened several times, like, like taking the character of Mel, for instance, Mel was originally a character who was female identifying named Melissa and Sammy, the director floated the idea of maybe we should make make Melissa non-binary like Imani. Um, and what I was able to do in the room as somebody who is autistic and non-binary um, was I was able to say, hey, talk to me about that so we're not putting the onus of education on the actors. Like, let me be part of that conversation so it's not the responsibility of the actor who's here to do the acting. Um, I could be there to help facilitate those conversations and to to be a resource how collaborative it was in terms of how you worked with them and how much you know how much they kind of really were able to bring into into this bring themselves into the part this was an extremely collaborative process and a lot of it happened just between rebecca and the actors so i didn't necessarily see all of it but it's it's all over the script like if you talk to des he'll tell you about how he wrote autistic spice and there's a line in it um that was cut that was in honor of me and imani that was about how um it was like i'd rather work with cats than humans um so there's there's little spots there's there's a gluten-free reference for our assistant director who's who's um for our associate director who's gluten-free so like there's there's spots all over that incorporate um the, the people involved and not just the actors, but the actors contributing to their characters is just an extension of what we say right at the beginning of the show, which is if you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person. So um, being able to contribute elements of themselves to these characters just helped strengthen the characters because you've got this one autistic person who's playing this one autistic character. And if they're in alignment on some things, it just, it just strengthens the show. It seemed like everyone involved was at their best. How are you at your best in working on this? Yeah, so I think it's the collaborative nature of this is what I think made all of that possible. Because when I came on to this project, I came on as the music assistant, which is a different role than assistant music director. It's, you know, a lesser role. You're just, you're helping out with the music team, keeping things in order. And I very easily, they could have been like, you're the music assistant, go be the music assistant. But they they knew they knew that I had a really strong advocacy background and they knew that I have an acting background and they, they knew that I have all these other skills to bring. And so Rebecca was extremely open to if I came over from the music table and I was like, hey, I don't think that's how, that's not how an autistic person would say that. Or like, I don't think that's 
that's authentic to the autistic experience or like maybe like this is touching on something that's really sensitive in the community and if we don't have the the time to to dedicate to that maybe we shouldn't touch it at all and she was really open and really grateful for that kind of input so my my strengths have always just been that like I, I think I'm somebody like you where like like I I like to do a whole lot of different things and and to let myself just grow into all these different spaces and and so being able to be myself in that way and contribute everything I could on this project, I think was just what made it, what made me able to be at my best was, and, and how valued my input was by the creators was, was really special. If you can think about this as, as the design and how that played out in getting the best of people, I'm curious on any, any, any you know, what your thoughts or any involvement in that. How did you design some things that were able to really bring out the best in other people? Yeah, so um, my my work with the Axis team primarily, you know, but besides what I did as a script consultant, which is separate, um, my my Axis team role uh, was primarily audience facing with a little bit of advocacy, and so the materials audience facing. Yeah, so it was a I I I worked on accessibility that would serve the audience so that the audience can access the show as opposed to as opposed to the actors. Um, so I, I developed a, a sensory advisory guide. Um, I collaborated with the designers if there were elements of the show that were that I felt would be triggering in a, um, in a sensory way. I was able to talk to them in real time and be like, like I could give them feedback and say, hey, can we mat the disco balls? Or uh, like Amigos magazine is too shiny and it's throwing reflections. Can we can we put some contact paper on it? Um, so I was able to help in that way. And, and it could take some advocacy too, because some every once in a while, an actor would be like, this lighting cue is too harsh. And so I could go to the designers and I could be like, hey, this lighting cue is too harsh for this actor. Can we adjust this for the actor? So, um, but in, in regards to that, in regards to having the access team presence, I think what made it so great for the actors is that they knew that they had somebody on their side the whole time. Um, and that we weren't just people who were, willing to listen. We are people who understood it on a deeper level because, you know, if, if somebody comes to me and says that that light is too bright, I know exactly what they mean. I don't have to ask for clarification. I know exactly what they're talking about. Um, have you been thinking about this work environment versus others? Is that something you've always had? Um, no. <laughs> it's something I see as maternal that I think men, men, who are organizing things don't do as well. And I'm loving that so many women, so many women, whoever that's defined that are involved in this. I mean, you have mostly women involved in this musical. And again, is there, is there something in that? Am I crazy? Is there something in a more maternal thought way that this that this is more successful than when you take women out of the picture? Well, I think I think it's it it's just a testament to care in general because everything, all of this would be wouldn't be possible if accessibility wasn't set as the priority by our lead producers p3 two-thirds of whom are men <laughs> so um two out of three of the p3 are men um <laughs> but but it was it was really you know it had to be their priority and then it was you know they brought on a lot of people of of all genders and um you had men that were you had men that were open to this which is not always the case is what was my main right point. right no and and they they saw they understood why this was important, why why crafting such um, a caring environment was was important to the actual creation of art and and valuable 
to the creation of art. And I'm sure Ava talked to you about the access surveys, but um, everybody right from the get-go was able to articulate what their access needs were. And then we were able to craft an environment that catered to everybody's access needs. And, and that doesn't even have to deal with disability. It could be one of the neurotypical um, actors who plays parents who whose access need is they need to keep their phone on because they they have kids like it, that that's what an access need could be or like they want to step out every once in a while because they do better if they get fresh air like it doesn't matter and if you talk to any of the non-autistic uh, company members on this team what they'll say is like they never want to do another show again that doesn't work that way because accessibility benefited them and I've worked in theaters before I worked with one theater that was amazing. We did Beauty and the Beast. And because of my sensory sensitivities, they pulled off the transformation without strobe lights and without fog. And so I've worked with theaters who have done that before. But more, more usually I work with theaters with whom I'll say, hey, strobes are a problem for me. Fog is a problem for me. And they'll just be like, okay, you, sorry, we're using it. You have to deal with it. <laughs> uh, big difference. <laughs> This is an, this is going to re, re, revolutionize how how we work with artists in in any way in any form, yeah. especially ones that are on, dealing with some disability. I, I sure hope so. <laughs> oh, definitely um, no. And and all of us, I, I can I can tell you that the the tone and the mood of um of you know backstage and everything ever since the announcement has just been an even more caring, tender one. Everybody's even more even more um, aware of each other's needs. And um, it's been really lovely. And we all, I believe we all understand as a company um, that we've done something amazing and that we've we've achieved so many things and that closing doesn't diminish any of those achievements that we've made. And, and I keep saying it's reassuring, but frustrating to understand that the show, the show closing has very little to do with the show itself. And, very much to do with um, the current Broadway climate, unfortunately. I think this is going to be a case study. Um, and I mean, this this whole season too, having three musicals which focus on the representation of marginalized groups and three pieces of art as activism, which are closing early, being Here Lies Love Harmony and now How to Dance in Ohio. I think that's going to be a case study in like, how can we... How can we accommodate, how can we make space on Broadway for these stories that deserve to be told, but for which maybe it doesn't appeal to, you know, the the rich people who are buying $500 tickets. What is your, what got you here in terms of like your interest in musical theater? How do you go from, I don't know, being young and being interested in this to, do, to doing this as part of a job? Like, what is your path in musical theater? Uh, well, I played, I played in my high school pits when I was, when I was in high school, I, I played in pits. Um, and I remember looking at the people on stage and being like, oh, that'd be really cool. But that's not I, that's not I don't see people like me there. So that's that's not for me. All the girls are wearing dresses. I don't want to I don't want to wear it. So I didn't see me on stage, but I was always I was really like intrigued by it. But I was like, that's you know, I belong under the stage. <laughs> so I, <laughs> so I, um, I, that's where my my introduction to musical theater was. But even even before that, though, um, like my sister is four years younger than me and I wanted to name her either Eliza after My Fair Lady or Gretel after The Sound of Music. Like my favorite movies growing up were all mu musical movies, but my mom is terrified of New York. So we never went into New York to actually see Broadway shows. Um, even though I, I live in New Jersey, I live really close. 
we never really went to New York. I didn't see my first Broadway show until I was in middle school. And it was like, I think it was Legally Blonde. Um, and, and it was like, it was something that I've always thought is really cool and really fun. Um, and then I went to college and uh, my understanding of like, if you want to be a serious musician, if you want to be taken seriously as a musician is you have to be a symphonic musician. You have to do classical music. And that's the most respectable path as a musician is to do classical music. So I left college auditioning for symphony orchestras. Uh, I play clarinet as well as piano. I play a bunch of instruments, but I majored in clarinet, bass clarinet and piano. Um, so I was doing that and I realized I hated that. <laughs> I hated that so much. <laughs> That's a miserable existence. Um, bless the people who are able to to make symphony auditioning a thing because it's awful. What did you so, hate about it? Was it a formality of it? Was it reducing it to... Oh, God. It's just your job if you're auditioning for symphonies is you have to sit and practice for six to eight hours a day. And you're practicing these lists of like 40 excerpts that these orchestras will post. They'll say, these are the excerpts you need to prepare. And it's like 40 excerpts. And there are like seven of them you've never heard in your life. And you've ha you have to go and like research them and find the score because they don't even give you the score. And you, you put in all this work, hours and hours of work, practice. And then you drive hours to get to this audition because there's only one like every month. <laughs> if you're a clarinet player, there's like one audition a month. And you drive hours to get there. And you've rehearsed all these crazy excerpts and then you get there and you're in the room for two minutes and they ask for the same three excerpts every time. And you're like, why did, <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> so it's, it's just so miserable. And like, even when you're in the waiting room, it's a bunch of people who are just like preening their feathers. Like they're, you, nobody's friendly. Nobody wants to talk or network. Like it was, it's just not, it was not fun for me. <laughs> so take me, take me. I don't know. In doing a lot of interviews, there's always a point where like someone will be like, oh, and I watched that musical and my brain exploded and I knew what I was going to do. Fun home. <laughs> fun home. It was fun home. Go back a little further, because I mean, I know you were in Little Super Horrors. You were Audrey, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and this all came after Epic Flyers is a neurodiverse theater company based in Brooklyn um, that serves actors with disabilities and provides professional performing opportunities for um, especially actors on the autism spectrum. Tell me about your understanding and experience of uh, Fun Home. Yeah, so the what bridged me from this symphony world where I was miserable into musical theater, it was one singular moment where um, I was attending a community theater production of Ragtime and I saw that their next show was Fun Home. There was like a sign up, like come audition for our next show, Fun Home. And I kind of knew about Fun Home. I, I was still in that phase of like, this show resonates with me and I don't quite understand why. But I looked at that and I was like, I would kill somebody to play in that pit. And the person I said that to, the person, well, the person, <laughs> the person I said that out loud to, <laughs> I, the person turned out to be the director who I, who I had said that to. And she's like, well, <laughs> the guy who's music directing Ragtime is also music directing Fun Home. You can talk to him. And I talked to him and I found out the show was, um, the pit was already booked. And I was like, oh, womp womp, that's a bummer. Um, and then I got in my car after Ragtime and I listen to SiriusXM a lot. And what they do at 11 p.m. is they play full cast albums. And it was it was such a surreal moment. I turned my car on 11 p.m., turned on my car, and I heard that first lick of Fun Home. And I, I just I had like a, a light bulb moment where I was like, wait, you know what? I don't want to I don't want to play in the pit. I want to be in that production. I want to be I want to be on stage. I can do that. If if there's a character like that, I can be on stage. And so I immediately quit classical music, enrolled in voice lessons, acting lessons, and um, 
and then started doing musical theater full time from there. So I think that was like 2018, maybe 2017. Um, that production, I made it to callbacks and I wasn't cast, but I was still so proud of that as somebody who's never done musical theater before, you know, like that was still a triumph. <laughs> So since then, I've I've had the, the privilege of music directing a production of Fun Home, which I did this year. I did a virtual, I did two virtual productions of Fun Home during the pandemic um, that I music directed. And in one of them, I played Small Allison. I would still kill somebody to play Medium Allison. <laughs> so. I want to I get into, tell me about your connection with falsettos, only because that is the best, this, except for this musical, that is the other best one ever made. <laughs> well, I... I was playing musicals in college. It's something I never considered as like a viable career path because I, it was simply so fun. Like I was like, this is this is too fun. What do you mean I can just do this for a living? Like it's something I did because it was so much fun. And I played a production of falsettos in college. And I remember not appreciating it, it that much at the time because I remember just thinking of it as the show where like all of a sudden these men ran backstage and changed into these crazy morph suits and then sang this weird March of the Falsetto song. <laughs> I was like, what is this show? Um, but it, it just, it grew on me. And then when the revival came around and, and that album came out, I, I haven't seen the original, obviously I've listened to the original album, but I, I loved the revival. I didn't get to see that in person, but they did the pro shot. Um, and that's another story that's just, I, I don't know why that one stuck with me so much. I think just like the the thought of like four out of seven of the characters are queer is so cool. Seem to be tied to family. Do you f find it interesting exploring family dynamics in your work? Um, or do you not think of like think of like that? I didn't. I really think of falsettos like that. Um, I've never really seen my family dynamic portrayed because I, I have an interesting background where my parents, when I told them I thought I might be autistic, they said, you can't be autistic. You're just like us. And now I laugh at them for saying that because <laughs> they were correct. I, I am just like them. <laughs> so, so I grew up in a, if I were to choose one family that's most like mine, it would be the Munsters because <laughs> I grew up in a family in which I was the normal one. Like the, my parents and I, that was normal for us. And my sister was the weird one because she's not autistic. And she was like Marilyn Munster to us because we were like, what do you mean you eat sauce on your pasta, you weirdo? <laughs> no, there hasn't there hasn't been a Munster musical. I think that uh, that'd be strange, strange fodder, but a cool musical. What are some moments of magic for you that you got to see in doing all this? Um, I mean, my involvement was was magic, too, not just what I mentioned, but the way I originally, my original entry into the show was I auditioned for it. I auditioned for the role of Meredith, uh, missed my callback because I misread the email and spent weeks kicking myself devastated that like, that because I was like, oh, this, is, this show is perfect for me. I just know it. I know it. And I was just walking down the street in April, got a call from the music supervisor who was like, we're looking for a music assistant. We'd love to um, explore hiring autistic people. We remembered that uh, we remember your audition that you're a musician. Would you be interested? <laughs> and so that was magic about it that I, I thought that I had closed the door on myself by making a mistake, but it's still, I still found my way in and I landed, I landed even in a better position where, because, you know, like there are going to be further productions of this show. I can go play Meredith another time. Um, but the show's only written once and being able to be part of the creation 
of this show is like that's exactly where I needed to wind up, and that was just magical. That I love hearing that. It's I'm yeah. Um, all right, I do have one more question. Uh, <laughs> what is the long lasting legacy of this project going to be in your in your opinion? Um, what my hope is is that first of all, we we all everybody in the company knows that this is very deliberately this project is the first step in many in many avenues the first step in creating accessible audience experiences the first step in representation for autistic people on the stage it's very in very many ways the first step and so now that that door is open i hope the legacy is going to be that it's now going to be easier for more of these stories to make it to broadway now that we've broken that seal um, I hope that it's going to just open an avenue. I also hope it's going to shift the conversation on authentic casting and that people are going to value um, when autistic people are allowed to tell their own stories. I hope that I hope to never, ever see another community theater production of The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime where Christopher is cast as an, is by a neurotypical actor, um, because now there's no excuse. There's absolutely zero excuse. We had seven autistic people on stage eight times a week. Play, performing autistic stories and you have no reason not to cast an autistic person as Christopher now, you know? So I, I really hope that that's the legacy is that people can point to this as a beacon and that we have opened the door for more how to dance in Ohio's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I hear, I hear a lot of talk about, well, acting is acting who cares. And, and it's just, it's, it's so reductive and it's denying First of all, denying autistic people um, the opportunity to, you know, tell their own stories when historically we've been barred from playing neurotypical roles because they, you know, we're too autistic to play neurotypical roles. But when it comes to playing autistic people, oh no, we're, we'd we'd rather cast a neurotypical person. So, but it it reduces our entire experience to a set of behaviors to say to say that acting is acting and and lived experience doesn't matter um, and because. There is an autistic culture and the absence of the autistic culture in telling these stories is a detriment to the story. And also it's a detriment to like, I, I think for, you know, again, you're not, you're probably younger than I, but like having grown up at a different time, the only version I've ever had of autism was based on Rain Man. And if I didn't, if I wasn't Rain Man, I wasn't autistic. I think my mom said that. My mom said that exact thing. Yeah. She said, you're not Rain Man. When I said, I think I'm autistic, she said, you're not Rain Man. If I could spend the rest of my life working on how to dance in Ohio, I would in a heartbeat. If I could just go around going to work on different productions, I would I would do that in a heartbeat. Well, again, like, you know, the thing is, what's cool about whether or not whatever you do next, that the, 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 the structure, all the resources you created are a roadmap to do any musical like this. And I'm, and, and mm -hmm. I think again, if anything is lost from the production moving, it's that piece. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think too, it's, it's, it's also important to remember that Broadway is not the end all be all and that there's life beyond Broadway. And that unfortunately in our, in our current system, it really takes getting to Broadway for any show to like really achieve legitimacy there you know there's other shows that have broken through ride the cyclone notably you know was never on broadway and is quite popular right now that would be a, a great example of a cult musical but broadway's just a stop along the way in getting this story out there and and so there's life beyond broadway i don't know what that looks like either i, I don't have any inside information to share but but i would love to see 
this tour across America because that's its own form of accessibility that that brings the story to people who aren't in New York who can't just fly to New York and go see a Broadway show. Thank you so much for checking this out. Again, if you check out our page, Vintage Annals Archive, we have a Building Momentum page, which has more information on the show and everyone involved that was part of the podcast. Again, please share as much as you can. Uh, I do this really for the love. I don't really make any money at this, and I do spend money, and I'm happy to do that. Um, but any 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 sharing um, of our podcast can be really helpful. And again, make sure to check out upcoming episodes. We'll have about... Uh, six or so uploaded by February 12th and then another three or four over the week and then we're adding a few more but most of these will be out by mid I would say by the third week of February and then you know depending on what happens next we'll be documenting more and more of it um and again again one more last thank you to Sammy Canold the director really went another way to help me out with this process as well as Raymond Esposito one of the producers really um helped me out this is my first really attempt to document a document interview people on an active musical and uh, it's very different from working in film or music it's a whole different process and those folks really were helpful and helped me figure it out and also thank you to uh, uh arthur Ar 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 castro my editor who set this game up um we once we found that it was being closed i really wanted to have this stuff out by around the time it closed because I wanted people to understand what everybody went through and how important it was. And I want to thank again all our guests who spent time with me. It was a pleasure meeting all of them. So again, thank you. Take care.